1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. Today's interview is with Owen Flanagan, James B. Duke Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. His new book, The Geography of Morals Varieties of Moral Possibility, is just out from Oxford University Press. What is it to be moral, to lead an ethically good life? From a naturalistic perspective, any answer to this question begins from an understanding of what humans are like that is deeply informed by psychology, anthropology, and other human-directed perspectives as these are constrained by evolution. In The Geography of Morals, Flanagan sets out to clarify the landscape of moral possibility for actual human beings. He defends a perspective on human morality that he describes as an autology based in naturalism, gleaned from comparing Western, Chinese, and Indian moral traditions, as well as his investigations into psychology, anthropology, and other cultural studies. Flanagan considers how diverse moral traditions converge on some features basic to moral psychology, such as compassion, and yet they differ in other ways, such as whether anger is a justified and beneficial moral emotion, or whether it should be extirpated. He also examines different views of the self, including the the Buddhist tradition, in which there is no self. The book is full of insights from the traditions that Flanagan has investigated for decades, so, there's a lot to talk about. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Owen. welcome to new Books, New Books and Philosophy.
0: Oh, thank you, Carrie. Nice to be here
1: um so i'm uh to start off the interview it's a, it's always a good idea to provide listeners with some idea of the background of the book, um which can include a number of different things. But I think in this case, because you describe the book as a sequel to your previous book uh, varieties of moral personality. Um, maybe you could give us an idea of the genesis of this book by referring to the book that it is a sequel of and, and, uh, your longstanding interest in these areas as evidenced by these two books. Great.
0: Well, thank you. Um, right. So in the early nineties, um, well actually going back to the beginning of my uh, career, as you know, I've always been uh, interested in uh, philosophy of mind and philosophy of psychology uh, from the point of view of different views about human nature. Um, that At the beginning of my career, I was interested pro- pretty much in the kind of straight arrow philosophy of mind issues in terms of the mind-body problem, free will, um, and so on, but... Thanks to um, serendipity of being around a really interesting group of young philosophers in Boston back in the um, 80s, I uh, got involved in a moral psychology group uh, and mostly ethicists, people like David Wong and Larry Blum uh, and uh, actually Amelie Rorty, who was uh, quite a bit more senior than us. She was another instrumental person starting that group. We started to bring together people who were interested in uh, philosophy of mind but also interested in ethics and so the book um varieties of moral personality really came out of that amazing uh set of experiences talking with these other philosophers mostly in david wong's living room actually in cambridge um about what um how much would ethics benefit Uh, if philosophers who worked in moral philosophy thought more about uh, exciting new research in areas like human psychology. So um, in the late 80s, I started to work on the book, Varieties of Moral Personality. And and really, my intention in that book, which came out in 91, um, was to try to uh, bring together the best philosophical discussions of the nature of persons, of human nature, of basic human motivation, with what I took to be the best discussions in the sciences of the mind, especially psychology, about those very same questions. So in that book, uh I put forward an idea which I call the principle of minimal psychological realism. Um, and the principle of minimal psychological realism said this when you're constructing a moral theory, um uh make it realistic, at least in the sense that it's answerable to uh, what we know to be the case about um, uh, human nature, the structure of the emotions, possibilities for regulating the emotions, possibilities for um, regulating our own behavior. So the book contained um, uh, uh, discussions of what at that time was kind of exciting research about gender and morality. Um about moral stage theories. Kohlberg was, of course, in the, in the um, last century, Kohlberg's theory of moral stage development was um, very, very popular. Um, but there was also all kinds of work that I uh, wrote about in that book about um, that had effects on how we should think about virtue theory. So for example, the whole debate about whether or not there are, not, or not there are robust virtues uh, that comprise a person's character, or whether virtues are actually will-of-the-wisps that are very um, uh, 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 fragile and uh, vulnerable to situational influences. So uh, I basically tried to explore kind of all those um, adjacent areas of psychology that I thought of as relevant to philosophical moral psychology in that book. So what happened uh, that led to this next book, uh, besides a lot of other work in between, was I started to get more and more interested uh, since about 2000 um, in non-Western philosophies. Uh, I started out by getting interested in Buddhism, thanks to an invitation by the Dalai Lama to um, talk to him and his group in India about destructive emotions. And it was at those meetings that I realized, gosh, it's not just psychology which is relevant to Um, ethics into moral psychology, but it's got to be anthropology or something like cross-cultural psychology, because that was a conversation in which I learned uh, that as far as the Buddhists were concerned, um, the um, uh, anger in particular was the most destructive emotion, and they were pretty confident that we could do things to anger, which uh, at least in my experience, haven't been explored in the West. So that was the beginning of this journey that's now led me not only from to the Indian philosophical tradition, but then thanks to my colleague, David Wong, who I mentioned before, who came down to Duke uh, in the year 2000. Uh, I learned a lot about Chinese philosophy from him and a lot of other um, wonderful scholars of Chinese philosophy. And I just started to think that it was worth uh, uh, exploring uh, basically the differences in different moral traditions, and how local ecologies had determined different conceptions of virtue and vice, uh, different hierarchies of virtues, different trump relations among virtues, and that sort of thing. So that's the connection between the two. First book, ethics and psychology. This book, Geography of Morals, broadens the broadens the terrain to include anthropology and cultural. Um, uh psychology and uh lots of non-western moral theories
1: okay um so i mean one of the things that you mentioned again towards the beginning um is this idea that there was you were not the only person who was discontented to put it that way with um the view of moral psychology that was prevailing as being a very parochial one and in fact uh, there's a corresponding discomfort in psychology about the typical you know test populations, often college students who are often of a particular uh, socioeconomic uh, category, as well as being from certain Western nations and so forth. Um, is this Is this sort of parochialism still a worry? Yeah, I, I
0: guess I think it is. And thank you for uh, um, yeah bringing that issue up. So if, if you know, I love that. Uh, there, one, my favorite part of the book uh, actually is this quote from McIntyre. <laughs> um, so it's a piece I didn't write, but where Alistair McIntyre in a paper called uh, How I Survived the Moral Philosophy of the 20th Century, he, he talks about this. Uh, uh, he says, this is a paraphrase. He says, no one would ever have thought that you could learn philosophy, do philosophy of law without studying the law, or philosophy of physics without studying physics, uh, and so on and so forth. But no one in the 20th century, and of course this is an exaggeration, uh, gave a thought to the idea that moral philosophers should be studying um, sociology, psychology, and anthropology. And that he has a wonderful way of, I think, putting the impulse behind my book. He says, but unless we do this, we are imprisoned by our own upbringing And not aware of the varieties of moral possibility so that's really that kind of parochialism is really the guiding inspiration for me namely um the idea that uh you know uh that we live many of us live in multicultural cosmopolitan worlds in which there are all kinds of people who have in their blood and bones the sort of moral conceptions of different traditions and uh so for, if you're going to do a realistic moral philosophy, one has to be sort of come sensitive to these um, traditions and think about what resources they might have for us. You mentioned also, of course, besides the um, sort of complaint about philosophical parochialism, um, which I think is a, is a serious and complicated issue for philosophers to think about in terms of our curriculum, uh, there is exactly as you said, and you know this as well as I do because you've worked in philosophy of mind for so long. Um, you know, psychologists have go- been going around saying forever, we better hope that American college sophomores are representative because our our psychology and our neuroscience is based on uh, studying them. And so there was a wonderful paper that came out um, uh, in Brain and Behavioral Sciences in, I think, 2007, approximately, by the British Columbia team. Um, which is about uh, the, weirdest, the weirdest people in the world. And they asked two questions, right? They asked, the first question they asked was, uh, actually, to what extent is most of our psychological information uh, based on North American college samples? And I believe their answer was about 85% um, up until that time, 2007. And then their second question was, how representative is this group of people? And their answer was, it's the least representative group in the history of humankind because we come from Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. Literacy alone is only 5,000 years old. So, uh, so, so I think this has made philosophers, psychologists, anthropologists all sensitive to the fact that um, our presumptions and assumptions about such things as human nature, the basic structure and nature of mind, what is natural and what is unnatural, what is natural and what's socially constructed. I think that's all thrown that into a sort of healthy contested um, part of our intellectual life now. And I think that's all for the good. It's a little bit complicated to figure out how then to figure out how to orient ourselves when such things as basic psychological truths are up for grabs, uh, whether or not, you know, the philosophy, which is in a lineage from, as Alfred North Whitehead said, the safest generalization to make about Western philosophy is that it's but a series of footnotes to Plato. It, it, one 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 might, for McIntyre and, and um, other reasons, start to worry that that lineage is only one particular way of thinking about human nature and human good. So I think the time is exciting and ripe for this more for this broader cross-cultural thinking
1: good um so i mean so one of the things that you ways that you describe your position is is one in which you're defending a kind of a synthesis uh what what you call an autology o-u-g-h-t-o-l-o-g-y autology uh based in naturalism and and this brings up the two there's sort of two poles here that i that kind of come out as being in tension with each other within the realm let's put it this way of moral psychology um when you start to get away from the idea that uh we can depend on you know these Western democratic populations or a very limited uh sample of mankind, let's put it that way um in order to understand uh more morals um then the opposite problem can also arise which uh there are positions that you you call or which are called nihilism and skepticism which is um you know that our talk about morality is really just a cover for other forces from evolution and there's really nothing else to moral psychology behind besides whatever evolution kind of gave us and it's that's it in other words you go from this a very abstract maybe idealistic sort of position all the way to saying that um you know, psychology or morals in a sense is in some sense kind of bunk. There's just evolution and there's the way we behave and we have this language of ethics kind of on top of it, uh, but that's all there is. And so you you end up with not instead of the ideal of, of whatever the ethical theory is, uh, that's you know, for all possible rational agents or something like that, to a very, very grounded naturalistic view where uh we should really just kind of in a sense maybe stop talking about ethics entirely or at least about the oughts of ought of of ethics in a particular way um so can you um can you explain these these tensions that are kind of going on at this time uh in moral psychology or, or at least in the approach to ethics between those who feel that if you give get rid of uh the perspective of traditional of traditional ethics and you delve into this psychology and even if you widen that psychology to a more geographically normal perspective, you're still there's still this tension between a, a sense of ought that is nevertheless abstracted from all of that
0: good yeah uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, question. So let me just say a few maybe helpful things because you hit the nail uh, really on the head that there's this so one way to think about the sort of traditional ethical project in the west actually and here's one thing i've been helped by in terms of thinking about some examples from non-western philosophy and in fact let me use an example Um, it does seem to me that traditional ethics uh, of the sort that we study at least i studied in uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate school in philosophy Um, is really very, very closely aligned with a certain theological project. And so the idea was roughly that, you know, whereas in the Abrahamic traditions, uh, one was supposed to be able to ground morality in some kind of uh, theological picture. And God, of course, being all good, all loving, all powerful, and so on, uh, he doesn't make mistakes. So if you're confused, uh, uh, go go to him for guidance. And whether you can't, even if you can't figure out the reasons for a particular uh, uh, moral uh, uh, truths or whatever, uh, well, God knows. So I think the, the 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 philosophical oughts, and this is actually something that Anscombe says in her famous paper, "Moral Modern Moral Philosophy," which some people love and some people hate. I won't comment on what, which which view. I I sometimes have both uh, views of that paper. But one thing she sort of is pointing out is that the language we have, the way we speak, when we we and the sort of lineage that comes through uh, uh, from Plato through Kant, we'll say, uh, uh, speaks about aughts. They're grounded in something metaphysically deep. So right out of the gate, as soon as one goes naturalistic, uh, one is, I think, typically uh, going anti-foundationalistic. One is thinking that they're not going to be foundations to ethics or morality at that level. They're not going to be something a priori. They're not going to be theological. They're not going to be um, uh, um, some kind of eternal platonic um, forms. So now you might think, oh my gosh, once you go there though, um, then all there is, what there is and all there is, is just like sort of one little causal force after another that is kind of, you know, making us think that this is a good idea or this is a bad idea. And that's, as you point out, that, those are roads to both uh, nihilism and skepticism of a certain sort. Let me tell you the historical story, though, I think that helped me see why naturalism... There's two parts of the story. Uh, one is that I always was... I, I thought of the analogy always of philosophical naturalism with what Quine says about epistemology naturalized. Uh, and Quine is at least pretty clear in his sense that he doesn't think, if you think of um, epistemology as continuous with science, that he doesn't think that that gets rid of the normative project. Although people like Putnam and Jaguan Kim say, oh, my God, it's, it's intellectuals. It's, it's normative, normative suicide. But Quine's idea was, I think, something like this. Imagine that we start out on the epistemology side with something like the straight rule of induction. A uh, very simple form of making generalizations over experiences. What happens eventually, in fact, what did happen over world historical time, is we now have the canons of deductive logic and the canons of statistics, probability, theory, and inductive logic. And students are taught these at great universities before they, st- at the same time they're starting to study the human sciences or the- at the same time they're studying philosophy. I take it that something happened there where we separated naturalistically the epistemic wheat from the epistemic chaff, that we figured out ways to sophisticate, not to keep committing problems like this problems of the small sample or unrepresentative samples. I think roughly the same idea has to be the case in ethics. We sort of come into the world, we're thrown into the world, if you want to think existentialistically, and over world historical time we discover certain patterns of thinking and behavior which lead to uh, flourishing and well-being at rates higher than the average and ones that don't. The historical example I'll give, and then I'll shut up for a minute, is this, that in, uh, I think it was in the 15, uh, middle of the 16th century, 1500s, uh, a fellow named Matteo Ricci, a Jesuit priest, had gotten to the Forbidden City in China. and um, uh, But even before he went, philosophers like Leibniz and Voltaire um, were interested in China for the following reason. They, they realized that the Chinese did not have the Christian God, but that the Chinese were ethical. And... Leibniz talked about a commerce of mutual light. He thought there's something missing. We've we've got these sort of powerful metaphysical foundations for a form of life, a moral form of life. The Chinese don't have the strong moral foundations, the metaphysical foundations, but they seem to be highly ethical. So I think, you know, that, and and of course it is true. I mean, what what one thinks about when one does this kind of cross-cultural work is it really is the case. That the Chinese philosophical tradition now there being one point five billion people in China um, is a tradition which is not, in our sense, deeply metaphysical nor is it deeply theological, but it's it it finds a way to engage in serious moral discourse in a way that's not nihilistic or skeptical. Um, so you might say because <laughs> because what is actual is possible that shows me that they're resources in a kind of a more naturalistic perspective for moral seriousness.
1: Okay. But, uh, you know, just to before we get to some of the more specifics um, in the book, um, uh, you know, given my own experience with with non-naturalism and and the sort of the pushback from from non-naturalists, the idea is always that you can never get in a sense you can't get enough of an ought from whatever it is the facts of evolution or anthropology or anything like that um and sometimes that's put in terms of you can't get a ought from an is um to use to use hume's phrase um but sometimes it's just a kind of sense that there's a normativity to ethics to to uh any sort of moral concept um that just is not that is its own sui generis type of of normativity and whatever sort of normativity you might be able to get from evolution in terms of you know, what flourishes in a evolutionary context or however you want to elaborate that that will never tell you what the right thing to do is or what the good you know is or that sort of a thing so h- how do you respond to that sort of hardcore you know non-naturalist perspective because that that perspective is is still one that that is is popular to to some extent um and there's you know and and you see that you know constantly this uh idea that there's a kind of normativity that you aren't – you're just not going to get it from a naturalistic perspective no okay. matter how hard you try.
0: Good. So three comments. One is I do think um, the first point is simply this. I think uh, that the kind of ought that sometimes philosophers think morality, um, the peculiar institution of morality, necessitates – is does come with a certain kind of glow that comes from a certain kind of deeply metaphysical and even I'll say Abrahamic religious conception. It's, it's, it, but I, and so I think you're not going to get that kind of ought. Um, my view is deflationary in the sense I do. Quine once said ethics is like engineering that's deflationary. And I don't think it's completely wrong. Um, think of it this way. And then I'll give the two other points. Um, suppose there's water, I mean, there's food on the other side of the river. We're the original people. The ice just melted at the end of the Pleistocene. Here you and I and our other people are sitting here. And we look and we somehow express to ourselves and to each other the thought, lo, there is food over on the other side of the river. Um, uh, so that's a fact. There's, there's water on the other side of the river. Um, we want uh, the food. Uh, that's another fact. It's about our psychology. And now we've got a practical problem of how to get the food. Uh, In that kind of case, no one ever says you're importing an ought, which is that when you want something a lot and it's over there, then you've got to figure out a way to get it. No one says you're importing a weird ought in that case, although you would be importing an ought. So there's nothing that follows deductively or demonstratively about that you ought to learn how to swim or build bridges in order to get there. I think actually, though, that the logic of... um, Moral oughts is similar is more similar to those kinds of oughts than uh, the tradition makes us think. The other two comments are actually about uh, a massive uh, misreading of Hume on is to ought, but uh, correctly read. I mean, so the famous passage in the Treatise on Human Nature, which is where Hume says you can't uh, derive oughts from is, Hume is actually uh, criticizing clerics at that point, and he says, watch out for the bishops. They'll tell you things like, you ought not to do such and so, and they'll be importing of you that you ought not to do such and so because God uh, prohibits you from doing such and so, but in order to do that, they'll have to introduce another ought. Um, And what Hume is insisting on there is he says, you can't demonstrate in ethics. He goes on for 200 more pages in the treatise to do ethics, though. So I think the key is that We have to accept a completely fallibilistic conception of what we're doing when there's ethical considerations going on what we're doing is something more in the vicinity of abduction and induction about what ways of being and acting will lead to and it's probably a multiplicity of good things things like feelings of your own integrity self-esteem self-respect flourishing of the community that you're in um, and so on and so forth so the, 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 if people, when people say that Hume taught us that you can't, that it's naughty to derive odds from is's, Hume, in fact, does say it's naughty to make believe that you're deriving odds from ises. But that resonates with that famous passage in Aristotle, where he says you can't do that in the Nicomachean Ethics, where he talks about a certain kind of difference between reasoning and ethics and reasoning and mathematics. So uh, as long as you don't claim to demonstrate anything in ethics, I don't see that there's a logical problem from Hume. The other, of course, big criticism of um, naturalism is Moore's famous uh, uh, claim that you can't give a naturalistic definition of good. But now what we know about concepts is that you can't give uh, reductive definitions of almost any interesting concepts except, you know, in the formal sciences. So I think those, that kind of that sort of traditional glib criticism of naturalism uh, is just difficult to sustain. The, the final thing I'll say, though, that what you said is very, very helpful, Kerry. Um, what, what does follow, though, on this sort of Humean view that we can't be doing deduction is beware of people who claim to know something uh, contentful about ethics from evolutionary biology, say. Or beware of anybody who wants to make certain conclusions directly from psychology or anthropology for that matter. The way I think about it is those sciences just give us, as it were, more information about the contours of our nature and the contours of things like human flourishing, contours of evolved conceptions of justice as fairness, and that's pretty much what they can do. Then we have to use something like what Aristotle called phrenesis, practical wisdom, to figure out what to do with that information. But the information doesn't lead to in the deductive sense, any particular philosophical conclusions, which, going back to your earlier question, would leave room open for a certain kind of skeptic. But it's not the kind of skeptic that I'd worry too much about. It would just be the kind of skeptic who could say things like, well, it's not obvious exactly why we should do it your way. And the answer to that is, you're right, it's not obvious why we should do it, but here are the kind of reasons that one can give for why go down this road rather than that. road."
1: Right. Okay um so well um i guess we should move to some of the views that you do present uh if and i guess in a sense defend um of what you call first human nature i mean this seemed very aristotelian to me the idea of a first human nature and then a second human nature um the first human nature you articulate in uh, in terms of both, um, Chinese and Western, uh, uh, views of moral psychology with the four sprouts from Mencius and the five modules from Jonathan Haidt. Um, and then on top of this comes cultural variation or, or second nature. So maybe we should begin with the idea of, uh, the first nature. Good. Yeah. So it's just,
0: uh, so the idea, you're absolutely right. The idea of first nature and second nature is from basically reading Aristotle. I forget even who used it, which philosopher. It might be someone like John McDowell who um, talked about this idea of uh, modeling things in terms of first nature and second nature. Not a lot, on my view, depends on it. Although I do think uh, what I have found out that there's a question that philosophers Uh, allow themselves to ask that at least cultural anthropologists think is forbidden uh, nowadays. And uh, the audience might be interested in this. So I've always thought, uh, back to my earliest work, that a a really interesting question is, what is human nature like deep down inside beneath the clothes of culture, if anything? And uh, it turns out asking questions about human nature is naughty in many quarters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but my idea was something like this. I mean, I, I mean, I know that there are sort of certain postmodern ideas, certain existentialist ideas about you know, Sartre famously says, "In the human case, existence precedes essence." I mean, I get what he was talking about—that um, uh, uh, we're we're radically plastic kinds of creatures. I get that. that. That the whole project is premised on that. But it's it is a kind of interesting question whether or not. I mean, we know that there are some phenotypic traits, uh, certainly physical ones, having two eyes, two ears, two arms, and so on and so forth, uh, being language users. You know, these are the kind of things that are pretty uncontroversially part of uh, the nature of the kind of uh, uh, hominid uh, that we are. And uh, so one of the ideas was uh, to at least sort of wonder about that question. And so one idea I had a long time ago. Uh, was to actually, uh, when I started reading these classical Chinese philosophers like Confucius and Mencius and Junzi, I was struck by the fact that just like Plato in particular, uh, and also like Hobbes and Hume and Rousseau, they use uh, state-of-nature thought experiments I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, and just on, you know, they would often say things like, well, you know, you leave humans in this and then it would be very similar. Like Plato has the famous example of the shepherd boy who falls down the well and finds the ring that makes him invisible. And he runs off and he kills the king and takes the kingdom and so on and so forth. And Plato's brother Glaucon there comments and any person where he did, you know, you know, find himself in that situation with the magic ring would do the same thing. So because we know pretty well that the Chinese philosophical community, 500 BCE, was in no contact whatsoever with the Greco-Roman world, it's kind of interesting if you have independent thought experiments that show up with similar surmises about human nature. You know, just on the grounds that, well, maybe people, if there is something like first human nature then people might be seeing the same kind of phenotypic patterns. And so that was where I sort of went to at first. What I was struck by in the case of um, uh, Mencius, now Mencius is right after Confucius, uh, was that, well, I was slightly amused by this uh, whole, there was a big discussion. Uh, so John Rawls in The Theory of Justice uh, he mentions the fact that maybe in the human case, there's a moral module that's kind of like the Chomsky linguistic, language acquisition device. That's interesting, that he just says that. And, um, of course, you and I know, Fodor you know, was writing after Chomsky about the idea that there might not just be one big module in the human mind, but there might be multiple modular systems, such things as the sensory systems. So, those are all peripheral. Exactly right, right. But the interesting thing is that there was, you know, so, so what I noticed was that at the same time, so th- there started to be a discussion. I think Mark Hauser and, and uh, John Mikhail at Harvard were arguing about who invented the idea of uh, mo- modularity, moral modularity, uh, and they were claiming that they stole it from each other in about two thousand, as I recall. It was a kind of a silly little discussion. But I actually had mentioned this idea of moral modularity in my earlier book, uh, 1991 book, Varieties, that we talked about already. But then I, by, by recent times, Jonathan Haidt and some of his colleagues had started to put out this idea that there might in human nature be these different, fairly deep, not peripheral systems that orient us towards the world. And so... Uh, I was interested, just because it's my nature. I was reading the psychology, what the psychologists say about morality, and then I was reading these classical texts, and I couldn't help but be struck uh, that Mencius, in a famous passage, says this: Anyone, were he to see a child falling into a well, would immediately feel alarm and compassion, not because he wanted to get in good with the child's parents, not because he wanted fame and fortune, not because he wanted a reward, just because as it were, that's the way we are. So, And then it turns out Mencius, and this is something that is known to all people who work in Chinese philosophy, goes on to try to talk about four, three other beginnings or sprouts, literally. These are kind of plants in human nature or seeds in human nature that can be grown. And what's, became, what's pretty clear in the Mencius case is that he thinks if you grow the four sprouts properly, you'll have a perfectly virtuous gentleman, a Chinese gentleman or a Chinese gentle person. So what I just just wanted to do in that particular part of the book, uh, partly because I'm so convinced that modern people and modern students in particular don't pay enough attention to the wisdom of the ages. Um, And uh, I guess every generation gets to lament the state of the youth, but you know there's so much enthusiasm in psychology and neuroscience for you know what was discovered last Thursday in some brain imaging and i was i was <laughs> i was really struck by the fact that so many you know so much of the basic insights of the height model so for example the height model has a sprout or a module he wants to say of compassion and it's exactly this if there is such a thing I'm not entirely convinced that there is such a thing, but I at least explore the possibility that what Haidt is noticing is something that Mencius was noticing in the passage I was just mentioning. Then what people like Haidt want to say is that there's an independent justice as fairness sort of you know, uh, sprout or beginning. And Mencius mentions that too. It's entirely separate. And I, and I, at the same time, I was looking at work by people like Franz Duvall and and uh, uh, Preston, um, Preston and Duvall on inequity aversion in monkeys and uh, capuchins, and it looked to me like these systems might really be uh, different, and that was actually a way that could be helpful for virtue theorists to start to think. So it wasn't only bringing together Mencius with height; it was also starting to think about. All these different virtues which are supposed to come together, and by the way, I did discover, I claim as of now, I never discovered a moral theory that wasn't a virtue theory. It might have other things to it too, like rules and principles, but every single tradition I've looked at so far has a, a, a virtue theory, a set of virtues that are necessary for living a good human life. So so that's where you know part of it is just kind of trying to get conversations crossing between some of these classical texts that are, have lots of wisdom and some ways of thinking about things from a modern, say, uh, psychological.
1: So um, obviously, I mean, we, we we all know individuals who are not compassionate or who don't think justice is fairness. Um, so in a sense, second nature is going to come in. Um, so can you say something about you know how how second nature develops and then how these two different natures kind of duke it out between themselves yeah good
0: good and they do duke it out i mean you're right so well one thing to say and i do argue for in the book is that if you look at almost all classical inventories of human nature they usually contain what i call seeds seeds and weeds you know roughly some good sprouts but also some bad or disruptive sprouts so, for example, in Buddhism, um, uh, they call the sprouts actually poison, the, the negative sprouts poisons in our nature, and they are they do tend to be um, familiar to us because they're things like um, wanting a lot of stuff, ego, um, thinking I I need what I want, and becoming angry and resentful when I don't get what I want. You know, something that if you know, so in sort of Buddhist sort of core first nature moral psychology, we are part of the problem, right? There's our nature is part of the problem. You also see in a classical Chinese philosopher, Junzi, who comes right after Mencius uh, and has a famous chapter called Human Nature is Bad. And actually, in the, he sounds a little bit like Hobbes, but he, and he's the one who, by the way, uses um, the phrase crooked, uh, crooked timber of humanity Actually not exactly in that way, but the translation is always that humans are like crooked wood that needs to be refined and straightened um, and so it's you know it's very interesting that this comes you know a couple thousand years before Kant settles on the same sort of metaphor but I think what one sees across these different traditions is that there are features of first human nature let's call them um, that's fine, and I do uh, refer to them that way often, uh, some of which are positive and pro-social and that a moral community wants to develop in fact usually you hear they usually, usually use agricultural metaphors you see this in Aristotle and you see this across the Chinese philosophers They're, the moral community is what grows, weeds seeds and cultivates uh, the virtues and it tries various tactics to moderate mitigate repress, extirpate the bad tendencies. So it's exactly like you said, it's duking it out. And it's different, what I would like to call moral ecologies, which are doing this in complicated, culturally specific, temporally specific ways. Uh, uh, And this is where maybe sociology would also come in
1: okay so i mean one of the the test case i suppose you you go into in detail you know in in the moral geography is anger which you've already mentioned um and how uh it it should be you know for well for some traditions anger should be extirpated uh for others actually anger is a healthy thing and and we should feel anger or at least we should feel angry about certain situations um can you say something about um your your sort of in-depth analysis of anger of yeah. that emotion
0: sure no good well the th- this actually is a topic that i got interested in because of the meeting i mentioned in 2000 with the dalai lama and some of his team um because the topic of those meetings there were everybody else there the five other people were uh neuroscientists um and psychologists, so for example Paul Ekman who's one of the leading emotions researchers happened to be there and uh, it became clear on the first day of our meetings that among Tibetan Buddhists they thought that anger was the most destructive emotion uh, and it became also clear that they thought there were ways to get rid of it now this this kind of shocked me uh, because well it just kind of shocked me and I, I remember saying to um, the Dalai Lama uh, I said, well, where I come from, we have this view that if we were to find ourselves next to Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Milosevic or even Mao um, uh, during the perpetration of the Holocaust or genocides that they perpetrated, it would, number one, be appropriate for us to feel moral outrage. And secondly, if we had a weapon to kill them and he turned to these high llamas behind him and he said, uh, and he talked to them for a minute in Tibetan, and then he turned back and he said, Yes, we think you should kill um, Hitler uh, in order to stop a bad karmic causal chain from unfolding, but you should do it with love and compassion. Uh, and what, what that revealed to me was that the way we think about what Strassen calls the reactive attitudes or the moral emotions is highly vulnerable to our background metaphysics. Now, without going into detail, basically it has to do with the fact that there's no similar theory of individual agency internal to Buddhism. Buddhism himself uh, chose to do the bad things that he did. Hitler is something like a bad node in the way the universe is unfolding. And when Buddhists say to you things like, Hitler could be your mother or your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter, they actually sometimes think, in fact, he will be given an infinite amount of time and repetition in the universe and things like that. Now, some of that's wild and crazy, but some of that is familiar. You see it even in in recent discussions among people like, you know, Greg Caruso and Dirk Paraboom about um, our our attitudes about moral anger are helped some by certain attitudes we have about choice, agency, possibly free will. So that was an example where, so I got interested in in that as sort of just thinking about what kind of webs of moral belief or ways of world-making help make sense of the different parts of a culturally specific moral tradition. Then I got interested in anger also because I felt... um, I've been around long enough, Uh, I was in college in the 60s. Those were times that were fraught, but I feel like I've never seen as angry times as we live in. Uh, I've never been through as angry times, at least that's my impression. Even in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a kind of hopefulness. Uh, There was going to be, you know, feminism was coming along, Uh, it was becoming a thing. Civil rights was moving and becoming, uh, uh, there was real progress made anti-war there was real progress made so there was hope now i feel like there's anger and no hope um so that's that was sort of the way i got interested in anger and i should mention what i've done since the book so in the book as you mentioned i explore two sort of major traditions stoicism and buddhism which basically think we should extirpate anger root and branch and they also think it's psychologically and anthropologically and sociologically possible Since then, actually, I've now read, uh, I think I've read all the anthropology of anger uh, that's available on recent work on anger. And there's unbelievable cultural variation in the norms governing moral anger. Here's a couple of examples. If you ask Americans what makes you most angry, they say, wasting my effing time. No No other culture says that in their top five. If you ask an American, what does anger make you want to do? We say, it makes me want to hit people in the face, punch the person in the face. Japanese don't say that. They say, it makes me want to leave the room. So so that's another, at least. So what I found helpful about the exploration of anger, I don't have a clear position on it. I sort of do have a clear position on it, but that's work I've done since this. And I'll be writing a book about anger and shame pretty soon. But what I will say is this. Going back to that McIntyre point about being imprisoned by our own upbringing and not being aware of the varieties of moral possibility, I really felt like when I started to study both different moral traditions on anger and cross-cultural psychology and the anthropology of anger, it became clear to me that what a lot of Americans think is perfectly normal, that is, the ways we get angry, are not normal in the statistical sense or in the moral sense in other cultures.
1: um okay well let me let me push a little bit uh so the discussion of anger or 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 shame or these sort of moral emotions i mean in in a sense they're about uh you know how i ought to feel rather than maybe what i ought to do uh and i was thinking more about the sorts of features that maybe might be included in first human nature uh that um that are perhaps the bad sprouts uh or the weeds or whatever metaphor you want to give I'm not sure what a hunter-gatherer group would would call them but um it's interesting that they're all agricultural that's kind of odd to me but anyway um uh so i was i was thinking more about um whether e- even if you assume that there's sort of cultural variation in terms of what the right moral emotions are how they can be controlled and specifically the emotion of anger um there's there's the also the issue of just what sorts of variation might there be or what sorts of possibilities moral possibilities are there in terms of dealing with the the weeds um so you know greed is you know to in our world today is probably you know or avarice or whatever you want to call it is probably the 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 weed that is flourishing the most um and in comparison to those weeds, as opposed to I don't really see i guess what I'm saying is I don't really see the moral emotions as the weeds so much as maybe some sort of you know pollen that comes out of you know all the flourishing stuff um but the the for a if one wants any moral progress given a naturalistic view of human nature and you've got you know. Four, four uh sprouts or five modules or whatever it is you've also got these other uh other aspects of human nature that are you know opposing it um what how do how do we how what's a, what are the moral possibilities again from your global perspective or geographically global perspective what are the possibilities for getting rid of or controlling those things and not just like a moral emotion
0: right well th- the first thing i'll just uh say this about the moral emotions though so it looks like most of the emotions are action guiding in some way but you're right they there's a lot of focus in thinking about them part of the thing we're thinking about uh is sort of you might saw it sort of your intra psychic equilibrium of persons right i mean and 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 i take it that that's an interesting normative problem or interesting set of normative issues to think about like that is what would make for a healthy human being a person who flourishes what kind of emotions are destructive to her soul what kind of emotions are destructive to her relations but i hear you so um, so going back to so i will say i mean it's it, it's i think you're right i mean that Greed and uh, avarice—they were pretty. I was talking to Sam Bowles, who's a a good um, sort of economist and anthropologist, and I was talking about that in my in my um, research. uh, Usually, what is considered a virtue in one tradition is not considered a vice in the other. In any other, they're usually lower ranked. But I said anger was one exception because anger uh, is sometimes considered a vice like by Stoics and Buddhists. But he pointed out that he thought avarice had really gone from the vice list in modern times to uh, a virtue if described in a certain way. I mean, it has to be described as she's immensely hardworking and ambitious, something like that, right? Um, uh, So, well, it's harder to say that and get away with it, but it might really. I mean, I think you're hitting... I think you're hitting on something really important. And this is why I emphasize so much the importance of sort of ecologies, Um, ecologies which select for. So it isn't just individuals. It's really, you know, that we're, we're, as it were, born into worlds. The worlds are are there with whatever their particular sort of value and normative structures available to us uh, when we're born. We know how powerful those, Um, structures are in yielding second nature. I mean, you know, I think, you know, uh, economists and sociologists will tell us, you know, that zip code is one of the very best predictors of where you'll end up in terms of on the economic ladder, in terms of education and so on and so forth. So just as we're born into certain socioeconomic worlds, we're born into worlds with antecedent normative structure. And those worlds help select for virtues or vices. Uh, whichever there are. And I think that we, I think you're right that we live in a world in which uh, greed of some forms acquisitiveness um, is uh, encouraged. And I don't know, you know, that's, it worries me a lot, Carrie, I guess I'll just put it that way. What, what I will also say is that it's, it's not a new observation Every Again, when I study classical Indian, classical Chinese, and classical Western philosophy, they all see this problem in human nature, this acquisitive side of ourselves. And they, I think again and again, you'll see it as the big problem, which is why one thing that turns up, I've never, I've, again, never come across a tradition that doesn't have this, is either the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, or what some people call the silver rule, which is the negative version of it. Do not that to another, what you would not have them do to you. That's kind of interesting because it shows right out of the gate. Well, modern humans are 250,000 years old, but in the last 5,000 years, you'll see statements of that principle where there's writing. Um, So uh, this was always the most poisonous seed acknowledged in our nature, I think, um, the, the, the seed of avarice, avarice and ego.
1: Okay. Um, so in the, in the final chapters, you, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of our hour, unfortunately, but I did want to at least get to a chance to touch on the final chapters where you talk about, uh, what you call anthropologies, um, views of the nature of the self. Um, and this is a particularly interesting, uh, nowadays, a lot of people are looking at the nature of the self. There's a lot of different models of the self from, from various different traditions, including the Buddhist, no self self. Um, uh, could you say something about how different views of the self fold into the, the overall, um, uh, perspective on, on morals?
0: Good, yeah, so um, you know uh, again, going back to uh, you know sort of central work in ethics and political philosophy and and including some of the discussion I had in my uh, in the varieties of moral personality book, the nineteen ninety one book, I was very interested in what was a hot debate around that time, which is that whether or not liberals and communitarians conceive of the self differently, roughly whether uh, people like uh, John Rawls uh, and Robert Nozick um, uh, thought of individuals as you know, solitary uh, creatures seeking each seeking their own good and then trying to have it accommodate other also individualistic creatures, versus people like McIntyre and uh, Sandel and uh, 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 Charles Taylor, who thought of themselves in more communitarian terms and thought wanted to explore the resources for thinking about the self, as constituted and conceptualized in terms of one's relations, um, I mean, there there's, there happened to be some good work by some psychologists and, and anthropologists about this very topic. So I was led to sort of go back and uh, look at what the psychologists and anthropologists had to say about these different self conceptions. And what came up along the way, I think, are some interesting things. So, for example, um, not only do there seem to be some differences between how individualistic or communal different cultures think of the self and one's good, but also that there seem to be some evidence of different results in terms of uh, such issues about like self-serving bias or positive illusions. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of great work um, on how prone people are to thinking that they're in the top five percentile in terms of uh, intelligence, you know, looks, uh, their friends are all equally virtuous and worthy, and so on and so forth. It turns out that people in individualistic cultures are much more prone to those kind of illusions than people who live in what are called non-individualistic cultures, which is kind of interesting. So, and that self-serving bias um, is uh, uh, is another area in which people seem to be. Um, so you start to get these results. Two different kinds of results. One is just the, the curiosity of how do different people conceptualize who and what they they are, and how their good is whether they're good as an individual achievement or a cultural or social achievement. And then secondly, you get some interesting uh, correlations between these different views of self and whether or not certain of the characteristic errors like fundamental attribution error, self-serving bias error, positive illusions are made. And it looks like people in individualistic cultures make these mistakes more commonly than people in other cultures.
1: Um, so well, they're adaptive, little... I would think.
0: You would think they're adaptive in, in different
1: cultures. In too. in that culture, they are. Yeah. I think
0: you're exactly right. Exactly right. So the question is, if you though think, as many philosophers do, that it's bad to make mistakes, including about yourself, <laughs> you know. Um, so if you have high epistemic standards it might worry you that there's something funny about this way of viewing the self that maybe is causally related to these things. So, so that's sort of the, you know, that's where the project takes me at the end in thinking about, uh, and that, that's back to the, what I said earlier about in terms of, um, I do think that when we think about cross-cultural philosophy, it's not just ethics that one sees some variation in, it's in background philosophical psychology and in background metaphysics. Um, And, uh, you know, all these tweaking one uh, has consequences for the other all the way down. So it's actually a very, very exciting way for philosophers who are interested in metaphysical issues, epistemology, social philosophy and ethics and political philosophy to sort of see how they interact because they really do interact in interesting ways Uh, depending on the cultural tradition one is, um, is analyzing.
1: Cool. Well, we are, we are out of time. So, um, I like to end with a final question about what's on the horizon for you is, uh, which, what are you working on now? Uh, what's your next project?
0: Well, what I, as I mentioned, uh, thank you for asking that. So I will do a book on, um, anger and, uh, uh, partly uh, maybe as a trade book uh, because I'm so – I am concerned about the the effects on the youth of these angry times we live in. And I want to point out that there's some pressures from different philosophical traditions to think um, uh, about the ways in which we um, – that anger is an obstacle to communication, the way anger – maybe involves passing pain, which is something we shouldn't want to do. Martha Nisbaum has written very profitably about this as well. And I'm also, so I'm interested in pushing back against anger as a tactic in either personal life or in political life. And I'm also interested in, this is a separate project maybe, in uh, uh, rehabilitating shame as a good uh, positive moral emotion. There's a lot of work in the Chinese tradition about how uh, shame is uh, is good, uh, uh, possibly for us, although it's not very pleasant. And I think there's something to be said for that. So that so anger and shame uh, are my next uh, the next projects.
1: Very good. Um well, I look forward to reading that uh, that work. um, but for the time being, uh, I think we have to stop, and um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books in philosophy.
0: Thank you very much, Carrie. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Owen Flanagan, professor of philosophy at Duke University. We've been talking about his new book, The Geography of Morals Varieties of Moral Possibility, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you for listening.